0: Bienvenue and welcome back to The Land of Desire, a podcast about the weird, wacky, and wonderful stories of French history and culture. Hello again. I hope everyone's 2018 is off to a great start. My hiatus was a bit longer than I expected, I've been a busy bee at work, and it's been great to take a break from the podcast and relax with friends and family, but I'm so glad to be back. As a reward for your patience, today's episode is a bit on the longer side. This year, we're kicking things off with a salute to one of France's most curious cultural ambassadors a woman who has helped generations of Americans discover French culture while remaining relatively unknown within France itself, Julia Child. As the author of the iconic cookbook Mastering the Art of French Cooking and the star of the long-running public television show The French Cook, Julia taught entire generations of Americans how to appreciate French cuisine and cook it at home she changed the way Americans thought about food and France. For the next few episodes, we'll follow this ridiculously interesting cultural icon as she leaves the sleepy childhood behind in order to conduct wartime espionage, fall in love, discover her life's work late in life, create a masterpiece, and change the cooking and dining habits of a nation. So this week... Open up a bottle of wine, start chopping up the onions, and enjoy part one of our mini series about the one, the only, Julia Child. After five days of rollicking waves, howling winds, and wretched seasickness, the newlywed realized she could finally see the stars. Miserable, wet fog had plagued her journey, almost from the moment she and her husband set sail from New York. It was hardly their first batch of bad travel together. They'd fallen in love during the war, stationed together overseas. They'd already survived crumbling roads, questionable meals, and dangerous assignments, so she wasn't worried about a little stormy weather. Still, she was nervous enough about the journey ahead. Was it too much to ask for an auspicious beginning? She wasn't a newlywed, not quite. Her wedding had taken place over a year ago, but she and her husband still felt like they were wrapping their heads around the idea of a marriage, and they'd had a lot of bad luck along the way. Two days before their wedding, they'd crashed their car into a tree, she'd said I do with a giant bandage covering half her forehead. They'd shrugged it off and jumped into their new life together, and their first year together was spent turning their little house into a home. Then, one February night, after drinking red wine and decorating valentines with friends, their house caught fire. And then a few weeks later, her husband's assignment at the State Department wrapped up. Homeless, jobless, futureless, the couple figured, why not just chuck it all and head back overseas where the magic began? for weeks the young woman bided her time waiting to find out whether her husband would be chosen for yet another state department job and where the placement might be at last an assignment came through paris the couple could hardly believe it was their luck finally turning around within weeks the two had packed up their remaining possessions into 14 suitcases and seven trunks and now At long last, after five stomach-churning days at sea, with the fog dissipating at long last, she could finally see the twinkling lights of France. She couldn't speak French. She didn't have a job lined up. She didn't have any friends. What new life awaited her? I had no idea what I was looking at, she recounted decades later. France was a misty abstraction for me, a land I had long imagined but had no real sense of. I was a six-foot, two-inch, 36-year-old, rather loud and unserious Californian. The sight of France in my porthole was like a giant question mark. The couple set out on the road to Paris, and she spent that morning looking out at the countryside, deciding what to make of this new world. At 12.30 the couple pulled into the ancient city of Rouen for lunch. In the tiny Market Square, on November 3, 1948, Julia Child ate the meal which would change her life and the life of millions of Americans forever. Charles Dickens once declared, Americans eat piles of indigestible matter. Now, Charles Dickens hailed from Victorian London, where breakfast was bread and butter and occasionally sawdust. Well into the 20th century, Virginia Woolf complained that what passes for cookery in England is an abomination and is put in cabbages and water. Yet, Charles Dickens couldn't stomach American food, and he wasn't alone. Most tourists were shocked by the huge amounts of terrible food, which, according to another Englishman, Each individual seemed to pitchfork down his gullet. It wasn't just outsiders feeling this way either. Sophisticated natives felt the same. James Fenimore Cooper, who spent years living abroad in France, returned home unable to accept his homeland's idea of a good meal. The Americans are the grossest feeders of any civilized nation known. As a nation, their food is heavy, coarse, and indigestible. A hundred and fifty years later, H. L. Mencken echoed the same complaint. What we need in this country is a general improvement in eating. We have the best raw materials in the world, both quantitatively and qualitatively, but most of them are ruined in the process of preparing them for the table. In 1912, when Julia Carolyn McWilliams made her debut into the world, one popular cookbook included recipes like grapefruit salad with pimentos, celery stuffed with mayonnaise, and clam bouillon with whipped cream. During her earliest years, the closest thing America had to a food fad was the cocktail party. And maybe they were popular so that adults could stomach eating so much mayonnaise. Most exciting developments and trends in turn-of-the-century American cooking and eating had to do with techniques of storing and shipping food, not preparing it for humans to eat. This meant you ended up with novelties like mint a translucent, green, mint-flavored crystals meant to be served with, I kid you not, breakfast bacon, mint and bacon. As the saying goes, they were so busy seeing whether they could, they never stopped to think about whether they should. It's little wonder that young Julia McWilliams was anything but a gastronome. Julia grew up carefree, adventurous, and wealthy in Pasadena, California. Her father was immensely rich, exclusive country club rich, barely noticed the Great Depression rich. And Julia lacked for nothing growing up. As a young troublemaker, Julia was a handy, quick-thinking child, always clever when it came to pranks and adventurous ideas, but a bit of a disaster in the kitchen. As one friend recalled later, she was a terror at the stove. One attempt to make jam ended in a real gooey mess. She didn't know how to cook, though God knows she tried. She made up for her failures in the kitchen at the dining table. She loved to pack it away, the family remembers. A typical American, Julia was exactly the type to pitchfork food down her gullet without paying any attention to what was on the plate. She wasn't a gourmet. She was just hungry. As a rule, the McWilliams clan weren't exactly adventurous eaters. That was probably for the best in 1920s Pasadena. You could get a pretty good hot dog or a ham and cheese sandwich, Julia remembers, but Pasadena was not exactly a gourmet's paradise back then. Funnily enough, Julia did have one very singular gourmet experience as a child. At the age of 14, her parents drove south of the border to Tijuana, probably in hopes of escaping prohibition for a night. They made their way to an uncharacteristically trendy restaurant, Caesar's Place. At dinner that night, Caesar himself came to the McWilliams table to assemble his newest dining sensation, hearts of romaine lettuce, drizzled with parmesan dressing, accompanied by a few tomatoes and garlic, and tossed with two eggs. Today, of course, we recognize Julia as one of the world's first consumers of a Caesar salad. At the time, however, Julia was too busy being distracted by the fact that her father was eating a salad. Before then, she later wrote, salads were considered rather exotic, definitely foreign, probably Bolshevist, and anyway, food only for sissies. With the exception of this one memorable meal, Julia spent most of her childhood eating meals prepared by a household cook, mostly big hunks of meat cooked the way her dad liked it, a ghastly medium gray. As the daughter of a man who also likes his meat cooked medium gray, a man who is probably listening to this episode right now, I understand, Julia, I understand. Most of Julia's early life was straightforward, but aimless. Private school just outside San Francisco, then off to Smith College where Julia quickly realized, like so many 18-year-olds, that she had no idea what she wanted to do with her life. The energetic, brainy women Julia went to school with scattered into a variety of careers and marriages, while Julia struggled to acquire either one. One job after another fizzled out. Secretarial school was a bust, then she worked at a home furnishing store, then she tried her hand at writing, even though the New Yorker, Time, and Newsweek magazines all rejected all of her submissions. Meanwhile, Julia assuaged her boredom with an active social life, and along the way she met a young man named Tom Johnston and fell head over heels in love. The two were a bit of an odd couple, but she was firmly convinced this guy was the one. Unfortunately, Tom had decided that Julia was not the one. At least, not the only one. He'd been secretly dating a girl back home the entire time. Poor Julia was knocked off her feet by the news. I was always struggling to be a pretty person, she wrote. Six foot two, overwhelming to most men, Julia felt awkward and unloved with a career, well, with no career. When I was in school and later, Julia wrote in her diary, I felt I had particular and unique spiritual gifts, that I was meant for something and was like no one else. It hadn't come out yet, but it was there, warm and latent. But today, it has gone out, and I am an ordinary person. At the beginning of 1937, two terrible developments reached the newspapers. The first was an announcement of Tom Johnston's marriage. The second was a recipe for Lacy Valentine's Salad. Marshmallows, apricots, maraschino cherries, dates, celery, and canned grapefruit suspended in gelatin and garnished with curly endive and mayonnaise piping. Truly, these were dark days. Utterly defeated by New York City, Julia McWilliams headed back home to Pasadena. She was 25, unmarried, and unemployed. In July of 1937, Julia's beloved mother passed away, and she was left with the company of her difficult father, who spent most of his time golfing and being racist. He does not have an abandon for life, Julia wrote in a profound moment of understatement. He sees it well-planned and sober and, I think, pretty unexciting. While living at home with her boring, cranky, offensive father, Julia attracted a new, completely unexpected type of suitor, Harrison Chandler, an incredibly wealthy, old-money type of person, heir to the Los Angeles Times. He fell head over heels for Julia, and one summer evening, he proposed. For a year, Julia hemmed and hawed and couldn't make up her mind. She was nearly 30, with no other visible prospects for love or career, with a proposal from a staggeringly wealthy man. But she just wasn't in love. At last, her mind was made up by the most unforeseen of events, the attack on Pearl Harbor. Julia joined the Aircraft Warning Service, a volunteer group which monitored the coastline for enemy ships. And considering Japanese submarines fired into Santa Barbara just a few hours north, This was no insignificant duty. At last, Julia had fallen in love, just not with Harrison Chandler. She had fallen in love with intelligence work. Julia returned Harrison's ring, and she wrote in her diary that night, "'It is a sin to marry without love, "'and marriage, while utterly desirable, "'must be with the right one. "'I know what I want, and it is simpatico, "'companionship, interests, great respect, and fun. With that, Julia McWilliams packed her bags and headed to Washington, D.C. to join the Office of Strategic Services. As the precursor to what we now know as the CIA, the OSS was filled with the nation's best and brightest. It was glamorous, exciting, and impossibly attractive to a girl from the safest of all suburbs. On December 14, 1942, wearing a brand new leopard fur coat, 30-year-old Julia McWilliams arrived at the office. Walking in, there was a feeling of excitement in that office, she once wrote. It was a special place filled with special people doing special work, top secret work. At long last, Julia McWilliams' life was finally ready to begin. Julia was a terror in the kitchen by the time she reached her thirties, and for once, this was actually cause for celebration. I could boil water for tea, Julia later told a friend, but my first big recipe was shark repellent that I mixed in the bathtub for the Navy. As soon as America entered the Pacific Theater, she began losing soldiers, not to enemy fire, but enemy fish. Nobody was willing to admit it at the time. We couldn't get the Navy to admit that sharks ate Navy men. They didn't like to say, Dear Mrs. So-and-so, your son was eaten by a shark. They'd much rather say, Your gallant son was lost at sea. Then one day, a shark was caught and they opened him up and found he still had some undigested parts of people in his stomach. One of them still had fingerprints and it turned out to be a Navy man. There was such glee in our office that they finally had proven a navy man could be eaten by a shark at the time the oss began their work there was only one known way to repel a shark expose it to the presence of a dead shark since the military figured uh navy men probably wouldn't want to fight world war ii with bits of rotting shark strapped to their backs the OSS was charged with developing an easy-to-transport, effective shark repellent. As the CIA itself noted 60 years later, Julia's knack for disgusting dishes made her the perfect person to cook up, quote, a recipe that even a shark would refuse to eat. I must say, we had lots of fun, Julia told reporters. We designed rescue kits and other agent paraphernalia, I understand the shark repellent we developed is being used today for downed space equipment, strapped around it so the sharks won't attack it when it lands in the ocean. Or at least, that's what the CIA wants us to believe. My boyfriend is now convinced that I should pivot this show to focus on the tremendous looming threat of space sharks. By March 1944... Julia had proven herself to the organization, and she requested a transfer overseas. She was ready to see the world, and the OSS was happy to oblige. Julia set off aboard the SS Mariposa as one of nine women surrounded by 3,000 male soldiers heading across the Pacific. Over the next year, Julia was stationed in India and Sri Lanka, where she became known as the Keeper of the Secrets. In later years, Julia kind of waved away ideas that she'd ever been a spy and insisted that she was only an administrator. But just about everyone who worked with her disagrees. Poppycock, they say. Julia had top secret clearance, and she controlled everyone's access to confidential information. Julia knew the names of every secret intelligence officer in the field, as well as their code names. The work itself was a grind. But Julia was the linchpin holding together the entire operation. But that work was overwhelming, and it was pretty menial. Why did I come over as registry, she asked herself. I hate this work. Craving intellectual growth, Julia filled her days getting to know everyone stationed in Sri Lanka with her professors, engineers, artists, anthropologists, ornithologists, biologists, cryptologists, and more. In May 1944, Julia met one of the newest arrivals in the field. At first, she wasn't especially impressed. I thought not at all nice-looking, she wrote in her diary. Already in his mid-40s, the man was already going bald with an unbecoming blonde mustache and a long, unbecoming nose. Even worse, he was short. At six feet two, Julia simply towered over the man. He was, as friends described him, a bit of a know-it-all. Uptight, unimpressed, serious, and skeptical. Love was nowhere to be found the first time Julia laid eyes on this irritating but intriguing man. Within a year, however, Paul Child would become the love of Julia's life. Julia was the first to realize she'd grown smitten. He may have been a bit of a pill, he may have been a bit arrogant, but why not? After all, Paul Child really was more interesting than all the others. Sophisticated, worldly, charming, and incredibly romantic. While he'd never been to college, Paul was a self-taught intellectual, deeply and widely read, a former artist, a bit of a bohemian, definitely an adventurer, and above all, a gourmand. One Sunday, Paul and Julia and their friends hiked out to a remote ridge where they relaxed in the grass watching elephants strolling beneath the palm trees. While Paul took photographs and entertained the group, Julia was hit with a realization. I decided I thought Paul was really very attractive. Unfortunately, while Paul found Julia warm and witty and extremely likable and pleasant to be around, he just didn't take her very seriously. Sure, Julia was fun, but what could he make of her background? Paul. Paul grew up hard scrabble, one of a pair of twins born to an exotic bohemian artist. While his brother went off to Harvard, Paul hit the road for the next 20 years. Here's a summary. He dug ditches in California, made reproductions of furniture in Cambridge, sailed a three-masted schooner from Nova Scotia to Bermuda, took professional photographs in New York City, produced stained glass in Paris, tutored in Italy, taught public school in Dordogne. He'd spent a decade as the younger lover of a wealthy sophisticate in Boston who kept company with the greatest scholars, artists, and critics gravitating towards Harvard. What could a man like that see in sheltered, privileged Julia McWilliams? Paul found himself drawn to Julia's good nature, her curiosity, and her mile-long legs, but as he worried about... Her maturity, the lack of worldly knowledge, the sloppy thinking, the wild emotionalism, the conventional framework, and the fact that she had almost no challenge in her life. Worst of all, at the age of 32, Julia McWilliams was still a virgin. While Paul made up his mind, the war effort surged ahead. And in January 1945, with two hours notice, Paul was reassigned to Chongqing, China. Julia hardly had the chance to say goodbye. It was like Tom Johnston all over again. Once more, Julia decided to leave behind the scene of her heartbreak, and she applied for a transfer. In the spring of 1945, as the war in Europe concluded and the world focused its attention on the Pacific front, Julia shipped out to Kunming, China. She had no illusions about running into Paul, who was stationed more than 400 miles south. It's the distance between Washington, D.C. and Canada, the distance between Liverpool and Paris. If Julia wanted a distraction, she was about to receive one. In order to reach China from Sri Lanka in the year 1945, she'd have to go, as the OSS crowd liked to put it, over the hump, 550 miles by air, over 15,000 foot tall Himalayan peaks. You could look down, wrote the assistant to the director of the OSS, and see the twisted wreckage of planes that didn't make it. At least 400 by the time she made the journey. Pilots considered it, quote, the most hazardous flight in the world. Strapping herself into an unpressurized troop transport plane, Julia embarked on a terrifying three-hour thrill ride. As one fellow passenger wrote, people prayed during the flight. You could see fear on their faces, especially during the descent. No one was sure whether we were landing or crashing. Julia calmly read a book while all the rest of us were preparing to die. Once the plane landed and everyone stumbled off to go throw up and kiss the solid ground, Julia set to work immediately and had the entire registry system up and running within days. In Kunming, Julia was as close to the action as she'd ever been, but she was still bored. Within only a few weeks, however, life was about to get a lot more interesting. As the war approached its final days, Kunming quickly became the center of the action. Anybody who was anybody important was getting reassigned to Kunming and a steady flow of operatives and officials made their way into Julia's files and Julia's camp. In April, who should walk in the door but the last OSS operative Julia ever expected to see? Paul Child. Paul delighted in Julia's company, but he still hadn't allowed himself to return her obvious affection. As he wrote to his brother at the time, When am I going to meet a grown up dame with beauty, brains, character, sophistication, and sensibility? Well, considering she just crossed the Himalayas without breaking a sweat before setting up an elaborate top secret intelligence network on the front lines of the Allied forces, have you considered the woman next to you, Paul? In the end, conversations about politics, art, music, and philosophy could only bring the two of them so close. It would take another subject entirely to bring the two together at last. Food. On base, the army served up, as Julia recalls, rice, potatoes, canned tomatoes, and water buffalo. While their colleagues forced down this insipid menu, Paul and Julia decided to head outside the walls of the Allied outpost and into the back streets of Kunming in search of something more delicious. And did they ever find it? In Kunming, Julia and Paul tried exotic dishes like chicken hot pots, fish steamed in plantain leaves, and duck with bamboo pith fungus. The only thing more exciting and adventurous to a hungry woman from Pasadena were the restaurants themselves. Noisy, chaotic, full of chopping cleavers and sizzling woks and the sound of slurping noodles. Together, Paul and Julia fell in love with Chinese cuisine and over time, at long last, with one another. In the steamy dining rooms of Kunming, the two friends discussed their most private histories, their deepest desires, their most painful memories, and their most poignant doubts. The war was coming to an end, What would be next? Julia was a woman forever spoiled by the adventure of war, destined to return home an old maid unsuited for a life of housework. Paul was a self-taught jack-of-all-trades dreading a return to the gray flannel lifestyle of American businessmen. In August 1945, two events changed the course of Julia's life. First, Japan surrendered, and World War II, the great adventure of Julia's life, came to a close. Second, Julia turned 33 and received from Paul a very sexy sonnet, hinting at his growing attraction. That fall, as the OSS operatives finished packing their bags, Paul and Julia went out for one last great Chinese meal. Not knowing what their future held, what direction their careers would take, or whether they'd ever see one another again. Paul and Julia ordered an incredible array of food. Spring rolls, mushrooms, Peking duck, egg drop soup. It was an obvious attempt to eat their feelings, and they had a lot of feelings. It was a strange life, dislocated, Julia thought. Everything is shifting and rearranging itself a dozen times a day, Paul wrote to his brother. Yet, Within only a few days of their separation, the truth dawned on Paul Child with unmistakable, long overdue clarity. Stationed in his newest assignment, surrounded by fabulous thousand-year-old palaces and ancient art, Paul simply couldn't enjoy another adventure without Julia at his side. "'Beloved Julie,' he wrote, "'at the risk of sounding trite, I wish you were here. I need you to enjoy these marvels with, and I miss your companionship something awful. Dearest Julie, why aren't you here holding my hand and making plans for food and fun? Love, Paulsky. One month later, Paul's postcard arrived at Julia's doorstep in Washington, D.C., and the next great adventure of Julia's life began. Having parked the car outside the ancient city of Rouen, Julia Child followed her husband Paul through the ancient courtyard of the Place du Vieux Marché in search of lunch. The honeymooners were starving after their week-long seasickness and miserable onboard meals. After a first year of marriage full of hope and heartbreak, the couple were still anxious to know whether they'd be able to sustain the love they'd felt during the war. An adventure was in order. Paul had a brand new job in the State Department in Paris. Paul couldn't wait to share the wonders of French architecture, history, and cuisine with his wife. Julia couldn't wait to explore the continent for the first time with Paul as her guide. They'd chosen an auspicious place to begin. The ancient courtyard they now crossed had played host to seminal moments in world history already. A few years earlier, Rouen had shuddered under Erwin Rommel's bombing raids. Fifty years before that, Claude Monet set up his easel in the square to paint the famous cathedral. Five hundred years before that, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake on this very spot. And one hundred years before that, the restaurant La Coronne first opened its doors. La Coronne that is, The Crown, still looks like something out of a French fairy tale. It's all timbered walls and troughs of fresh flowers, and you basically are half expecting Belle to wander past with her nose stuck in a book. Ever the sophisticate, Paul Child had dazzled his wife with stories of traditional French cuisine, and he figured there's probably no better introduction to traditional French cuisine than a restaurant celebrating its 603rd anniversary. It was warm inside, Julia wrote in her memoirs. The dining room was a comfortably old fashioned brown and white space, neither humble nor luxurious, at the far end was an enormous fireplace with a rotary spit on which something was cooking that sent out heavenly aromas. Julia was nervous, and she knew she was out of her depth. With her wealthy upbringing, this was hardly Julia's first time in a fancy restaurant. But she didn't have a very sophisticated palate, and worst of all, she didn't have a word of French. What should she order? Would she sound like a rube? Was Everyone really drinking wine at lunch? Luckily, Paul delighted in his opportunity to show off to his wife. Not wanting to upset their stomachs, Paul kept the meal simple and light, a half dozen oysters, a salad, and for the main course, sole meunier, delicate flat Dover sole poached in butter and drizzled with a sauce made of browned butter and chopped parsley. As her stomach rumbled, Julia paid rapt attention to the drama around her, even the salad preparation. What's that smell? Julia asked Paul. Shallots, being sautéed in fresh butter. What's a shallot? You'll see. As she sat expectantly, Julia couldn't help noticing that the waiters carried themselves with a quiet joy, as if their entire mission in life was to make their customers feel comfortable and well-tended. If so, they must have felt their mission fulfilled that day. As the waiter brought the sole meunier out to the table, everyone took a moment to just inhale the incredible aroma. It was not, of course, Julia's first fish dinner, Living near the coast in Pasadena, Julia's mother had cooked up such sturdy dinners as broiled mackerel and, oh god, codfish balls. But this? Sole Meunier? That was another question altogether. I lifted a forkful of fish to my mouth, took a bite, and chewed slowly. The flesh of the sole was delicate, with a light, but distinct taste of the ocean that blended marvelously with the browned butter. I chewed slowly and swallowed. It was a morsel of perfection. At La Coronne, I experienced fish and a dining experience of a higher order than any I'd ever had before. The couple paid their bill, while Paul chatted amiably with the server and Julia struggled out a clumsy, Merci, Monsieur. It was time to continue on to Paris. As the couple set out to find their car and hit the road, Paul and I floated out the door into the brilliant sunshine and cool air. Our first lunch together in France had been absolute perfection. It was the most exciting meal of my life. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. Next, we'll continue our mini-series on Julia Child as she learns how to master the art of French cooking and then faces an even more intimidating task, convincing America to try it at home. If you've never watched Julia Child, I can't recommend her enough. She's incredible. She's educational, she's warm, she's approachable, and I think above all, she's funny. There are tons of full episodes of The French Chef streaming on YouTube and Twitch. If you'd like to cook along at home, pick up a copy of Mastering the Art of French Cooking from your local library. It's a classic for a reason, and you'll be ready for our next episode. If you cook any dishes from the cookbook over the course of our mini-series, please post pictures on our Facebook page. I really want to see it. Before I sign off, I wanted to end tonight with a thank you to those of you who reached out to say hello these last few weeks. I'm sorry. I know I've been a bit off the radar. I was focusing on my day job, so I apologize that I took longer than usual to respond. But I really appreciated hearing from all of you during the break. You can reach out to me on the show's website at www.thelandofdesire.com or follow the show on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, consider leaving a review on the iTunes store or contributing to our Patreon page. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, au revoir!